Hello and welcome to episode 99 of the Free Movement Immigration Update podcast. My name is Colin Yeo and I'm joined as ever by my colleague CJ McKinney. Right, this month we've got all sorts of stuff to go through with you. We're covering some material on Ukraine. We've got quite a few different statements of changes stuff to cover. So some new family and private life routes and some business immigration routes. We're going to talk a bit about some EU rights stuff and I'm going to try not to get too cross about comprehensive sickness insurance stuff. Um, a little bit on small boats, a bit on trafficking and a quick mention for um, citizenship deprivation stats that were recently released um, right at the end. Okay, CJ, let's get started. Over to you. Thanks, Colin. We'll start with the situation in Ukraine, which has become increasingly dark. Just in the last few days, there have been reports of murders and other atrocities committed by Russian forces against civilians in occupied areas of the country. People fleeing this dreadful violence can enter EU countries freely, but if they want to come to the UK, they need a visa. There are two special visa schemes for Ukrainians uh, and their family members now in place, and there's a third coming on stream. Um, They are all free, and they all allow the person to stay in the UK for three years with the right to work and to access social welfare if necessary, which is, uh, by visa scheme standards, wildly generous, by refugee humanitarian emergency response standards. Uh, not so much. Um, visas obviously take time to process apart from anything else. And the uh, press is now full of stories about people waiting for weeks for their permission to travel, which, again, if you're talking about normal visas, yeah, a couple of weeks is, you know, it's pretty good going. But, you know, there's a war on. Um, and Colin, like, I'm going to talk a bit more about the three different schemes in a moment. But what's your take on the big picture here and the way the UK has structured its response to the Ukraine crisis? Yeah, it's pretty abysmal, basically. I mean, in contrast to the generosity of not just the adjacent countries um, to Ukraine, like Poland and Moldova, um, you know, the EU has activated the temporary protection directive. Ukrainians have got no problems having automatic legal stay, right to work, um, lawful residence, and alone in Europe, the UK is requiring them to apply for visas. And although, you know, like you said a minute ago, although the the visas are being done quite quickly by British standards. That's just not good enough for refugees who are fleeing an awful conflict where we, we've got four million have fled already. And um, you know, we saw some <laughs> the Home Office has been publishing stats on this occasionally. And it's been hard to get even those out of them, but they've been talking about visas issued. And it's, you know, it was, uh, 30, 40,000 visas issued or something. Obviously, that number's changing constantly and it, it is going up. But it turned out there was some stats released to journalists um, just last week um, saying under the new scheme, which is, you, you'll explain the details of this in a second, I think, the uh, Homes for Ukrainians scheme, uh, only 500 people have actually taken up all of those visas. You know, 5,000 have been issued, but only one in 10 have been uh, have been taken up. So the, the UK response is just appalling, really, in comparison to what EU countries are, are, are doing. And, you know, I, me and others have been advocating for removing the visa requirement. And I, I've got no doubt that, that would cause some really serious problems because you'd suddenly have a lot of Ukrainians arriving in a short space of time. But that's what's happening in other countries. You know, There's no reason we can't cope with that and do the best we can in the circumstances. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, let me just uh, explain very briefly the three main schemes that there are. Uh, the first is the Ukraine family scheme that was launched on the 4th of March. And the bulk of those 30-odd thousand visas that you mentioned will have been issued under that. Um, that allows people already in the UK to sponsor a wide range of family members, much wider than under normal family visa rules, uh, to come here. 
aunts, uncles, cousins, nieces, nephews, all sorts. Um, the sponsor can be British or a settled migrant or someone here on the EU settlement scheme, uh, but they can't be someone who's here on a temporary visa uh, unless it's EU pre-settled status. So if you're Ukrainian, you're working in the UK as a skilled worker, a seasonal worker, there's loads of those, uh, you can't use the family scheme. Then there's Homes for Ukraine uh, that opened on the 18th of March. It's only for people outside the UK, but it doesn't require any family relationship to sponsor someone to, to come. So anyone who has accommodation to offer for at least six months can sponsor, at the moment, a named Ukrainian. Uh, whether they know the person already or not, could be a stranger you meet on Facebook, could be family you weren't able to bring in under the family scheme. Uh, as you say, Colin, there's a bit of a trade-off between getting people in the door quickly and do, doing lots of safeguarding checks and so on. Finally, there's the extension scheme. It's not open yet, but this will be for Ukrainians already in the UK to get the same three years immigration permission as people who are newly arriving under those other schemes. So it's great if you're a seasonal worker who's tied to your employer, uh, you can't go back to Ukraine and instead of having to leave or to claim asylum, you could apply uh, for this extension scheme instead and you'll get proper residence rights. Um, but it won't help you bring family over, which is a drawback, because for some people that might be the whole point. It's also not open for applications until the 3rd of May. So plenty of gaps and defects in these schemes. Um, but overall, I suppose Ukrainians are being treated way, way better than if they were just any old refugees from some other war-torn country. Yeah, and that's one of the interesting issues with this, isn't it, is that... Um... Yeah, we're complaining here about the Home Office just not doing enough and it being a pathetic response in comparison to EU countries. It's an awful lot better than was made available to, you know, to Afghans and to, to Syrians before them where we had major refugee crises. And it's obviously much, much better than is available to um, other, you know, nationalities who, who are arriving by regular means. I, just before we move on from this, I mean, the, the, just you going through the schemes again, the, the thing about um, the extension scheme not being launched until May, I was just like, what? what is the Home Office doing with that? You say, if you're a Ukrainian seasonal agricultural worker and you're here and, and you know, you're out of work because your employer hasn't got any for you or something, you're expected to wait that long before you can get an extension or you end up in the, the, the sort of mainstream asylum. Just why couldn't they do that now? It's um, such a dismal response to a major refugee crisis which is right on the edge of of Europe and is right at our shores because of you know European free movement rights and the generosity of the European response because of the the temporary migration um, temporary protection directive and yeah we're also hearing reports and it's not something we sort of can talk about a lot but um, you know there are Ukrainians who've arrived by regular means um, as far as we know they haven't been crossing in small boats but they have been coming in via Ireland some of them may have managed to enter lawfully that way by getting themselves checked on arrival in the UK, um, getting um, leave outside the rules issued or something. But undoubtedly, some of them will have entered um, illegally without any such checks. And, um, you know, they're going to be subject to offshoring to, you know, that have committed a criminal offence and all these other things under the Nationality and Borders Bill that's going through Parliament, as well as, you know, the problems of going into the, the mainstream asylum system. So, yeah, it, it's really, it's not good. It's not good. Yeah, there's a lot of dissonance there with uh, look how generous we're being to Ukrainians and, oh, we must get this borders bill through so that we can be drastically uh, harsh to any, among others, Ukrainians who, who come in by regular means. Uh, also worth mentioning, there is a concession specifically for Ukrainian surrogate mothers to come to the UK. Um, private surrogacy is a big deal there. Uh, lots of British families do have a Ukrainian woman carrying their child um, and the Home Secretary has said this 
pregnant women and newborns in this situation uh, will be catered for outside the rules. Uh, Karma Hickman is the go-to on that. We have sort of said very little about refugee status for Ukrainians because the Home Office has said explicitly it doesn't want to be routing Ukrainians into the asylum system, uh, no doubt because it's a crumbling mess, as you've outlined in a briefing recently, Colin. So, like, actual refugee status for Ukrainian refugees is, is surprisingly peripheral in all this. It's, it's all about visas, but there is one type of asylum claim that's come up in recent years since Russia started invading bits of Ukraine, and um, people claiming persecution by the Ukrainian government because of the military draft that's been in place for, for some years. Um, there's an upper tribunal country guidance case on this exact issue called PK and OS. That was due to be heard by the Court of Appeal the other day at the end of March. But the uh, Home Office has now settled the case uh, by agreeing to reconsider the refusal of asylum to a uh, draft dodger. And uh, Julian Norman, who was acting in that case, uh, she writes that uh, other draft evaders refused asylum could also get the Home Office to reconsider by pointing out that the, the situation on the ground in Ukraine has changed quite quickly. Yes, it's the um, the sort of moral calculus of those cases suddenly looks very interesting, doesn't it? And um, you know, some people will say, "Well, why sh- why should they get asylum? They should go home and fight and stuff." And that's really. Uh, really tricky, tricky moral issues around that. Um, and be- again, before we sort of move on too much, the um, it's, there's been an interesting discussion about whether Ukrainians who are fleeing as refugees, you know, whether they actually are refugees. So the the women and children who have been leaving, um, do they have a well-founded fear of being persecuted for one of the convention reasons? And you know, some people would say, well, yes, nationality is obvious. Um, but you know, civil war or uh, a sort of an, even an invasion of this sort, where civilians. Um, are, are essentially, and it's it's horrible to put it like this, but they're not necessarily being targeted as such. They're sort of in the wrong place at the wrong time. That, that horrible language of collateral damage and so on. But you know, with some of the material we're seeing coming out of what's been happening in the last few days of deliberate targeting of of civilians and even executions and and arguably genocide, that rather does change that equation, and it it does start to look like you've got a good case on refugee convention grounds, as well as, um, you know, the subsidiary protection, humanitarian protection, um, individual risk from indiscriminate violence. And, you know, you can see why those kind of additional uh, types of protection available to refugee status um, exist. But, you know, perhaps that, as I say, the need for that is 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 less acute now that we can see the the real nature of what's going on in Ukraine. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's horrible stuff. We'll move on to... Uh, private family life and there was a statement of changes to the immigration rules this month uh, hc1118 205 pages and covers a lot of ground but it really makes changes in two main areas and uh, not exclusively um but uh, two main issues the first is um private family life the rules in this area are being totally rewritten really um partly to make them easier to understand the sort of simplification project but also to make some substantive changes. And Deborah Revels done a great job of summarising those on the site. So to summarise further still, um, there are particularly important changes for so-called seven-year children. So uh, kids who've lived in the UK for seven years of their young lives and they can't reasonably be expected to leave. Previously, uh, these kids could get permission to stay, regularise their immigration status, um, but they then wouldn't be allowed to settle indefinitely to remain for uh, 10 years um, but now they'll be able to apply for indefinite leave straight off the bat um, if they were born in the UK 
seven-year children not born in the UK will be able to apply for settlement after five years rather than ten. So either way, a big improvement. Of course, the Home Office uh, giveth with one hand and ticketh with the other, so they are simultaneously making it harder to settle on both private life and family life routes um, if you have a criminal record. So any sentence of 12 months or more, according to the rules, will permanently disqualify you from settlement. A lesser sentence uh, under 12 months will still stop you settling for five years, as do things like sham marriages and deception. So a bit of a mixed bag, but uh, certainly for people with no uh, character issues, um, very good news on the, on the private life front. Yeah, right. one thing that sort of popped into my head, which is sort of broader issue as I was going through this again, um, was that if you make deportation really easy um, and the threshold's really low, then the, the kind of the reason to not give people better status in the first place kind of falls away, I think. So on the, on the Home Office analysis of these things, like the reason to give people short periods of leave and make them extend is to check that they still qualify, that they're behaving themselves, they've kept their noses clean, whatever. But if it's actually really easy to take their status away from them later on anyway through you know, deportation process, then uh, I'm not sure the rationale for the first bit sort of, um, still stands up. But you know, it's not. It, it's, it's certainly not beyond the Home Office to be mean in two ways simultaneously at the same time for no particularly good reason. And uh, you know, it's, it's, it's welcome to see. Uh, it's welcome to see them actually relenting on that slightly in child cases. So, yeah, it's interesting, the rationalisation, maybe there is method in the madness. Um, those changes kick in on the 20th of June. The second major area in that statement of changes then is new business visas. Uh, they'd all been announced before at various points. We've probably talked about them on the podcast. So we've got the unsponsored high potential visa, the sort of weirdly part-sponsored, part-unsponsored scale-up visa, and the uh, global business mobility route. Only one of these leads to settlement in the UK, uh, the scale-up route. And the Home Office had said initially that high potential uh, would be a route to settlement. It is not. The one that's sort of most pressing is global business mobility because it launches on the 11th of April. And basically what they've done here is bundle together some existing routes with some actually brand new stuff. So four of the five Subcategories in global business mobility are basically intra-company transfer, sole representative and international agreement worker existing routes. Uh, but there's a new route called secondment worker thrown in. And that's for companies overseas to send in workers to accompany a high value export contracts. Maybe you sell a lot of supercomputers to a British company and you need to send a technician to show the buyers how to work them, that kind of thing. Ross Kennedy's had a look at the rules for global business mobility, which are now out because it supposedly launches next week. But he points out that a lot of the detail you need to know for how it'll actually work is in the guidance, uh, and there's no guidance. So, uh, or at least not as of the 5th of April when we're recording this. So Home Office should kind of get a wiggle on because if you ditch the old routes before making the new ones operable in terms of having the detailed terms and conditions and that would be that would be bad for business i know this isn't the main point but are, are supercomputers really still a thing cj <gasps> um yeah maybe i'm showing my age here with my uh, worked example i'm sure uh, someone who has advised on such contracts can come up with a better one <laughs> i did it does make me wonder I, I, i'm not best placed to to I sort of ask well answer these questions I can ask them but I just I wonder if this is going to be whether anybody's going to apply for this I, some of them undoubtedly yes because I, I think you know the intercompany transfer stuff is is really vital to some companies but some of the rest of it like the scale up stuff and so on I just I wonder if this is more examples of the Home Office I don't know either incompetently changing visa rules and accidentally making 
nobody eligible for them or deliberately doing it. So keeping this kind of rhetoric of the brightest and best, but quietly just making it really unattractive as a route so that nobody actually applies in contrast to the kind of previous ones, like we saw the innovative visa and so on. I don't know. We'll see. Finally, just a note on the very long-running saga of COVID-adjusted right-to-work checks. Uh, No time really to explain what they are. If you know, you know, but they've been extended once again until the 30th of September 2022. The last uh, end date was going to be 6th of April. That's been pushed back again, dateless to the relief of businesses. So EU immigration rights then. And a few years ago, the case we're about to discuss would have been massive news because the Court of Justice of the European Union has found that the UK was wrong to insist on comprehensive sickness insurance uh, all these years. We've discussed CSI on the last episode and and many times before, and it's this idea that EU citizens who uh, were living in the UK but weren't working, maybe they were studying, self-sufficient, they technically needed private health insurance, according to the British authorities. Colin, you, among others, always thought that that was wrong as a matter of EU law, but the issue never made it to the Court of Justice in the 10, 15 years that the Home Office insisted it was a thing. But now the Court of Justice um, has just sort of casually, as an aside in a case, has gone, oh yeah, and uh, the NHS counts as comprehensive sickness insurance. No worries, guys. And that was in a case from Northern Ireland. Um, It was referred to Luxembourg just before Brexit, C247-20 VI versus HMRC. So, Colin, like, we're, we're post-Brexit now. Uh, like, what are the implications of this ruling? Like, are there any? Is it too late to matter? I don't know where to start with this. just want to scream. And it's just, it, it's, it's just been, this has been such a long-running sore. And I think it reflects so badly on the um, judiciary that they failed to make a reference to the CJU and just the arrogance of of not doing that and the consequences to so many people of that arrogance is just huge and if you think you know think about the immediate sort of post referendum rush in people who were panicking about their status because of the you know the transparently thin excuse my language i don't think we usually swear on the podcast but there's just all bollocks that the, the the leave campaign came out with about you having automatic status and the vienna convention nonsense uh, and you know that was just so transparently rubbish that people were rushing to try and apply for some kind of status and, and or documents should we say and they were getting refused by the home office and told that they were unlawfully resident essentially because they didn't have this um, separate insurance if they were students or if they were self-sufficient and it turns out that they didn't need that all along um, the home office was was legally wrong, the um, tribunal was wrong, the Court of Appeal was wrong, and they could have, should have, but didn't refer this to the CJU to get a, to get a ruling on that. So, yeah, I'm, I think my considered response was basically, ah, I'm just really cross about it. But, yeah, but I mean, the, the question is, what 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 are the consequences now? And I, I, I don't really know, to be honest. I, I can't even begin to get my head around how to, to unpick all this. I you know, if you think about the number of people who had a right of residence denied, the kind of bankers' wives who were very upset about this did, weren't kicked out of the country or anything. But you know, young racialized um, uh, EU citizens were literally kicked out on on deportation cases um, because the Home Office asserted that they didn't qualify for permanent residence. They they benefited only from one of the lower tiers of protection because they only had residence or whatever. Um, you think about the amount of money that people have spent getting unnecessary health insurance um, because of this Home Office bollocks. 
and and the the arrogance of the judges in failing to refer this question and and you think about the anxiety that this has caused for you and there's, there's very little chance that people are going to get compensation for any of that i think there's a there has been some academic discourse on whether that might be possible and i think there are some some really interesting arguments about whether frankovich damages might be might be plausible but realistically you know there are so many people who've been affected by this i don't i don't think many if any would would ultimately get any kind of financial recompense for for the things that they've they've been put through so yeah really cross about this yeah it might might be a what in terms of just the narrow issue of spending money on private health insurance probably no one person is going to have spent enough to make it worth taking a case to try to recover damages right yeah exactly the, the sort of cost of yeah the cost of damages i know it's, you don't often hear lawyers saying it's not worth going to court but you know yeah, that that is going to be the case for most people. I'd have thought it's just not worth the candle, and people have got better things to do. They should, you know, frankly, they'd be better off just getting on with their lives and and not reflecting on how badly screwed they were by the Home Office all these years ago. Also, just to note that the deadline for applications on the Surrender Singh route has now closed. That was twenty nine March twenty twenty two. Again, uh, we're running late, Surrender Singh. If you know, you know. Um, but there is, the point is there is still scope for late applications, um, same as under the EU settlement scheme, if you have a reasonable grounds. And uh, Chris Ben from Seraphis has laid out very clearly what those um, reasonable grounds are in a piece on the site. Next, an interesting High Court decision in RHMMAKH 2022-EWHC695 admin. It masquerades as a small boat case, which makes it sort of topical and interesting. But uh, Jed Pennington actually wrote up the judgment and says what it actually is, is an incredibly involved dissertation about powers of search and seizure under the Immigration Acts. Basically, the Home Office uh, wants to find out who's organising small boat crossings so they can prosecute them and ultimately get those prosecutions thrown out because they do it wrong. But to that end, Border Force started just to routinely take mobile phones off people who were off the small boats, uh, keep them for three months as standard and, and extract all the data. Um, you might say it's an understandable policing investigative technique, um, but the problem was the total lack of a legal basis for doing it. And the Home Office first tack in its defence was to deny that there was such a policy. Uh, then they admitted that uh, there was and tried to retrospectively probably stitch together a legal basis, a search power here, a seizure power there um, from the Immigration Act, but none of them really bore on this actual situation, what they were doing. And the, the, the High Court said that you can't really stretch these powers. They're clearly for a different context, such as an immigration raid um, to cover this totally different situation and if you need need new powers of investigation and enforcement you had better pass a new law rather than try to make them up yeah this this um it's an interesting one and my my takeaway was more that actually they probably could have come up with a very similar policy lawfully if they'd tried maybe and maybe maybe not frankly maybe not but um what the the it's kind of classic home office is that they didn't even try they just did it anyway introduced this you know, deliberately horrible policy without thinking about what the legal basis might be and and they got caught. Just on the point of them sort of denying there was a policy which is a, a breach of the duty of candor, it wasn't even the only case this month uh, where the Home Office has been called up on that. Uh, there was a deportation case in the Court of Appeal called Yilmaz 2022 EWCA Civ 30 and uh, the issue there was the 
fairness of appealing against deportation from abroad after being deported to Turkey. Uh, Mr. Justice Mostyn in the High Court had found that there was no issue in this case, um, but it turned out uh, weeks before the hearing before him, the uh, embassy in Turkey had told the Home Office that there was some issue of local law that, quote, would prevent the use of video links for our immigration out-of-country appeals. The Home Office decided that this wasn't something enough to mention to the judge, deciding exactly that issue but uh, they're very sorry it won't happen again and uh, the lord chief justice says uh, we hope lessons have been learned from this sorry episode yes and the lesson that the home office learned is that um, they should scrap those appeals entirely so that's what's happening in the national importers bill you're not even getting out of country appeals anymore in those circumstances Uh, before we move on from this i've got to pick you up cj i've got to pick you up on this when it comes to judicial criticism which is always marvelously understated and unwaveringly polite more than unfortunate and particularly regrettable is about as bad as it can get. Only if you're the Home Office. They're, they're always the good chaps, aren't they, as far as judges are concerned. It's not like the uh, you know, the kind of hammied cases where you've got both barrels being fired at uh, you know, these immigration lawyers. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's true that it's always uh, very polite and restrained when it comes to Home Office lawyers, not so much when it comes to claimant lawyers. Trafficking then, there have been a couple of important uh, human trafficking cases in the Court of Appeal. Uh, We'll start with the good news. People who are officially confirmed as a victim of human trafficking uh, who then claim asylum, they should be granted immigration permission while their asylum case is decided. Um, And the significance of that is they can work while their asylum claim is decided over months or years, um, which asylum seekers can't normally do. That results comes about because Home Office policies that purport to implement the anti-trafficking convention, uh, they can be challenged in court on the basis that they breached the convention, uh, which would otherwise be non-justiciable. Gabriel Tan wrote up the case for us and, and says a bit more about that just disability issue in the piece. And Duncan Lewis listeners uh, have also got a blog post. Uh, we link to it in Gabriel's piece, the Case itself, EOG and KTT 2022 EWCA Civ 307. Yeah, I think probably not the last word. I imagine this issue of justiciability is heading up to the Supreme Court because the Home Office is quite keen to sort of resile from its previous policy on on um, on this. And yeah, the, the Supreme Court's not a very uh, it's not very sympathetic to the idea that you can uh, you can argue international conventions in the domestic court. So it might it might think otherwise. I look forward to trying to pronounce justiciability on the podcast. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I think I just about got away with that at that time. Hopefully. <laughs> Showing off, yeah. Um, in less good news on the trafficking front, there's been a high court judgment, which, or, or there had been previously a high court judgment saying this, um, if you're a confirmed victim uh, of trafficking and you have children, you should get extra support payments. The Court of Appeal has now reversed that decision, um, which is a shame, obviously, for those people. The um, High Court seems to have misunderstood what was happening with the payments. It's all very technical. Um, These people weren't really getting less money than other people in a comparable situation. Um, Basically, uh, Gabriel, again, explains the reasoning very well in terms of the arguments over indirect discrimination and the comparative group to take and, and so on but uh, the headline news is um government wins uh, that's the case of md and eh 2022 ewca civ 336 and finally as you mentioned at the outset some new figures on citizenship deprivation are out the number of people who had their british citizenship taken off them on national security grounds is not regularly published 
Um, but we now know there have been 27 such deprivations for the public good, as it's called, in uh, 2019 and 10 deprivations in 2020. Among other things, that sort of confirms that in 2017, where there were over 100 of these cases, that was a sort of aberration. Um, The numbers have subsided right back down in in the grand scheme of things. It also takes the number of people subject to citizenship deprivation to over 500, um, by my calculations. Um, And Colin, you've you've gone a step further and added... On top of the deprivations, the number of people who, or the number of decisions to nullify citizenship on the ground that uh, the person getting citizenship stole someone's identity, and that takes it to over a thousand. There is a big and slightly boring caveat: the fact that a whole heap of these nullification cases up to twenty seventeen had turned out to be unlawful. Um, so the Home Office seems to have put the same people through the deprivation process instead, um, if it was a fraud uh, case. So. There'll be a lot of double counting in that 1,000 and, and probably the number of individuals who've lost their citizenship overall in terms of both deprivation and nullification probably lies somewhere between 500 and 1,000. Yeah, that was, that was my guess when I was writing these up. Um, I, I thought there'd be some double counting, but um, I don't know. I've, I've got a case I've, I've been briefed on that I'm looking at at the moment where um, it's somebody who's been subject to deception deprivation but wasn't previously subject to nullification, and that's just come through in the last you know, in the figure in the 2021 stats. And I've I've been speaking to a colleague who's got another one as well. So maybe that a sort of assumption on my part was wrong. But certainly, that you know, we, we talked about there being a fall off in the number of public good deprivations, uh, which is very much welcomed after that that as you say big peak in 2017. There's been a massive increase in the number of of these deprivations on um, deception grounds. So. Um, looking at the stats, it's like 273 decisions in 2021 alone. So, um, you know, practitioners can expect quite a, you know, there's going to be quite a few of those cases floating around. And um, yeah, watch this space, I guess. Okay, well, I think that's um, I think that's it for this month, actually. So um, that's goodbye from me and from CJ, and we'll be back next month. Goodbye. <laughs>